Chapter Seven of Home Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Meat and Drink The food brought in ships from Europe to the colonists was naturally limited by the imperfect methods of transportation which then existed nothing like refrigerators were known no tin foods were even thought of ways of packing were very crude and careless so the kinds of provisions which would stand the long voyage on a slow sailing vessel were very few the settlers turned at once as all settlers in a new land should to the food supplies found in the new home of these the three most important ones were corn fish and game i have told of their plenty their value and their use there were many other bountiful and good foods among them pumpkins or pompions as they were at first called the pumpkin has sturdily kept its own place on the new england farm varying in popularity and use but always of value as easy of growth easy of cooking and easy to keep in a dried form yet the colonists did not welcome the pumpkin with eagerness even in times of great want they were justly rebuked for their indifference and dislike by johnson in his wonder-working providence who called the pumpkin quote, a fruit which the lord fed his people with till corn and cattle increased Close quote. another pumpkin lover referred to quote, the times wherein old pompion was a saint Close quote. one colonial poet gives the golden vegetable this tribute quote, we have pumpkins at morning and pumpkins at noon if it were not for pumpkins we should be undone Close quote. i am very sure were i living on dried corn and scant shellfish as the pilgrims were forced to do i should have turned with delight to pompion sauce as a change of diet stewed pumpkins and pumpkin bread were coarse ways of using the fruit for food pumpkin bread made of half indian meal was not very pleasing in appearance a traveller 
in 1704, called it an awkward food. It is eaten in Connecticut to this day. The Indian dried pumpkins and strung them for winter use, and the colonists followed the Indian custom. In Virginia, pumpkins were equally plentiful and useful. Ralph Hamor, in his true discourse, says they grew in such abundance that a hundred were often observed to spring from one seed. The Virginia Indians boiled beans, peas, corn, and pumpkins together, and the colonists liked the dish. In the trying times at James City, the plentiful pumpkins played a great part in providing food supplies for the starving Virginians. Squashes were also native vegetables. The name is Indian. To show the wonderful and varied way in which the English spelt Indian names, let me tell you that Roger Williams called them acuta squashes. The Puritan minister Higginson squanter squashes. The traveler Jocelyn squantor squashes. And the historian Wood isquoker squashes. Potatoes were known to New Englanders, but were rare, and when referred to were probably sweet potatoes. It was a long time before they were much liked. A farmer at Hadley, Massachusetts, had what he thought a very large crop in 1763. It was eight bushels. It was believed by many persons that if a man ate them every day, he could not live seven years. In the spring, all that were left on hand were carefully burned, for many believed that if cattle or horses ate these potatoes, they would die. They were first called, when carried to England, Virginia potatoes. Then they became much liked, and grown in Ireland, then the Irish settlers in New Hampshire brought them back to this continent, and now they are called, very senselessly, Irish potatoes. Many persons fancied the balls were what should be eaten, and said they did not much desire them. A fashionable way of cooking them was with butter, sugar, and grape juice. This was mixed with dates, lemons, and mace, seasoned with cinnamon, nutmeg, and pepper, then covered with a frosting of sugar. And you had to hunt well to find the potato among all these other things. In the Carolinas, the change in English diet was effected by the sweet potato. This root was cooked in various ways. It was roasted in ashes, boiled, made into puddings, used as a substitute for bread, 
made into pancakes which a foreigner said tasted as though composed of sweet almonds and in every way it was liked and was so plentiful that even the slaves fed upon it beans were abundant and were baked by the indians in earthen pots just as we bake them to-day the settlers planted peas parsnips turnips and carrots which grew and thrived huckleberries blackberries strawberries and grapes grew wild apple trees were planted at once and grew well in new england and the middle states twenty years after the roman catholic settlement of maryland the fruit orchards were conspicuously flourishing johnson writing in sixteen thirty four said that all then in new england could have apple pear and quince tarts instead of pumpkin pies they made apple slump apple mows apple crowdy apple tarts mess apple pies and puff apple pies the swedish parson dr acrelius writing home in seventeen fifty eight an account of the settlement of delaware said quote, apple pie is used through the whole year and when fresh apples are no longer to be had dried ones are used it is the evening meal of children house pie in country places is made of apples neither peeled nor freed from their cores and its crust is not broken if a wagon-wheel goes over it Unquote. the making of a portion of the autumn's crop of apples into dried apples apple sauce and apple butter for winter was preceded in many country homes by apple paring the cheerful kitchen of a farmhouse was set with an array of empty pans tubs and baskets of sharp knives and heaped-up barrels of apples a circle of laughing faces completed the scene and the barrels of apples were quickly emptied by the many skilful hands the apples intended for drying were strung on linen thread and hung on the kitchen and attic rafters the following day the stout crane in the open fireplace was hung with brass kettles which were filled with the pared apples sweet and sour in proper proportions the sour at the bottom since they required more time to cook if quinces could be had they were added to give flavor and molasses or boiled down pungent apple molasses was added for sweetening as there was danger that the sauce would burn over the roaring logs many housewives placed clean straw at the bottom of the kettle to keep the apples from the fiercest heat days were spent in preparing the winter stock of applesauce but when done and placed in barrels in the cellar it was always ready for use and when slightly frozen was a keen relish apple butter was made of the pared apples boiled down with cider 
wheat did not at first ripen well so white bread was for a time rarely eaten rye grew better so bread made of rye and injun which was half rye meal half corn meal was used instead bake shops were so many in number in all the towns that it is evident that housewives in towns and villages did not make bread in every home as to-day but bought it at the baker's at the time when america was settled no european peoples drank water as we do to-day for a constant beverage the english drank ale the dutch beer the french and spanish light wines for everyday use hence it seemed to the colonists a great trial and even a very dangerous experiment to drink water in the new world they were forced to do it however in many cases and to their surprise found that it agreed with them very well and that their health improved governor winthrop of massachusetts who was a most sensible and thoughtful man soon had water used as a constant drink by all in his household as cows increased in number and were cared for milk of course was added to the everyday fare rev mr higginson wrote in sixteen thirty that milk cost in salem but a penny a quart while another minister john cotton said that milk and ministers were the only things cheap in new england at that time milk cost but a penny and a quarter a quart in old england milk became a very important part of the food of families in the eighteenth century in seventeen twenty eight a discussion took place in the boston newspapers as to the expense of keeping a family of midland figures their writers all named only bread and milk for breakfast and supper ten years later a minister calculating the expenses of his family set down bread and milk for both breakfast and supper milk and hasty pudding milk and stewed pumpkin milk and baked apples milk and berries were variations in winter when milk was scarce sweetened cider diluted with water was used instead sometimes bread was soaked with this mixture it is said that children were usually very fond of it as comparatively few new england families in the seventeenth century owned churns i cannot think that many made butter of course families of wealth ate it but it was not common as to-day in the inventories of the property of the early settlers of maine there is but one churn named butter was worth from three pence to six pence a pound as cattle increased the duties of the dairy grew and soon were never ceasing and ever tiring the care of cream and making of butter was in the eighteenth century the duty of every good wife and dame in the country and usually in the town 
though the shape and ease of action of churns varied still butter making itself very little from the same work to-day several old-time churns are shown the revolving one being the most unusual cheese was plentiful and good in all the northern colonies it was also an unending care from the time the milk was set over the fire to warm and then to curdle through the breaking of the curds in the cheese basket through shaping it into cheeses and pressing in the cheese press placing them on the cheese ladders and constant turning and rubbing them an old cheese press cheese ladder and cheese basket from deerfield memorial hall are shown in the illustration in all households even those of great wealth and many servants assistance was given in all housewifery by the daughters of the household in the south it was chiefly by superintendence and teaching through actual exposition the negro slaves in the north it was by the careful performance of the work the manuscript cooking recipe book of many an ancient dame shows the great care they took in family cooking english methods of cooking at the time of the settlement of this country were very complicated and very laborious it was a day of hashes ragouts soups hotch-pots etc there were no great joints served until the time of charles i in almost every sixteenth-century recipe for cooking meat appear some such directions as these ye mince it smite them on gobbets you them on gobbets chop on gobbets you small dice them skirn them to dice curfit to dice grind all to dust smite on pieces parcel hem you small on morsel yen hack them small cut them on coupons great amounts of spices were used even perfumes and as there were no preservation of meat by ice perhaps the spices and perfumes were necessary of course the colonists were forced to adopt simpler ways of cooking but as towns and commerce increased there were many kitchen duties which made much tedious work many pickles spiced fruits preserved candied fruits and flowers and marmalades were made preserving was a very different art from canning fruit to-day there were no hermetically sealed jars no chemical methods no quick work about it vast jars were filled with preserves so rich that there was no need of keeping the air from them they could be opened that is the paper cover taken off and used as desired there was no fear of fermentation souring or moulding the housewives pickled samphire fennel purple cabbage nasturium buds green walnuts lemons radish pods barberries elder buds parsley mushrooms asparagus and many kinds of fish and fruit 
they candied fruits and nuts made many marmalades and quinones and a vast number of fruit wines and cordials even their cakes pies and puddings were most complicated and humble households were lavish in the various kinds they manufactured and ate they collared and potted many kinds of fish and game they salted and soused salted meat was eaten and very little fresh meat for there was no means of keeping meat after it was killed every well-to-do family had a powdering tub in which meat was powdered that is salted and pickled many families had a smoke-house in which beef ham and bacon were smoked perhaps the busiest month of the year was november called killing time when the chosen day arrived oxen cows and swine which had been fattened for the winter's stock were slaughtered early in the morning that the meat might be hard and cold before being put in the pickle sausages rollishes and head cheese were made lard tried out and tallow saved a curious and quaint domestic implement or utensil found hanging on the walls of some kitchens was what was known as a sausage gun one here is shown with the piston detached and also ready for use the sausage meat was forced out through the nozzle into the sausage cases a simpler form of sausage stuffer has also been seen much like a tube and piston garden syringe though i must add a suspicion which has always lingered in my mind that the latter utensil was really a syringe gun such as once used to disable hummingbirds by squirting water upon them sausage meat was thus prepared in new york farmhouses the meat was cut coarsely into half-inch pieces and thrown into wooden boxes about three feet long and ten inches deep then its first chopping was by men using spades which had been ground to a sharp edge there were many families that found all their supply of sweetening in maple sugar and honey but housewives of dignity and elegance desired to have some supply of sugar certainly to offer visitors for their dish of tea this sugar was always loaf sugar and truly loaf sugar for it was purchased ever in great loaves or cones which averaged in weight about nine to ten pounds apiece one cone would last thrifty folk for a year this pure clear sugar cone always came wrapped in a deep blue-purple paper of such unusual and beautiful tint and so color-laden that in country homes it was carefully saved and soaked to supply a dye for a small amount of the finest wool which was used when spun and dyed for some specially choice purpose the cutting of this cone of sugar into lumps of equal size and regular shape was distinctly the work of the mistress and daughters of the house it was too exact and too dainty a piece of work to be entrusted to clumsy 
or wasteful servants various simply shaped sugar shears or sugar cutters were used an ordinary form is shown in the illustration i well recall the only family in which i ever saw this solemn function of sugar-cutting take place it was about thirty years ago an old boston east india merchant one of the last to cling to a residence in what is known now as the burnt district always desired and his desire was law to use these loaves of sugar in his household i don't know where he got them so long after everyone else had apparently ceased buying them he may have specially imported them at any rate he had them and to the end of her life it was the morning duty of his wife to cut the sugar i can see my old cousin still in what she termed her breakfast-room dressed very handsomely standing before a bare mahogany table on which a maid placed the considerable array of a silver salver without legs which was set on a folded cloth and held the sugar-loaf and the sugar-cutter and another salver with legs that bore various bowls and one beautiful silver sugar-box which was kept filled high with her husband's toddy it seemed an interminably tedious work to me and a senseless one as i chafingly waited for the delightful morning drive in delightful boston it was in this household that i encountered the sweetest thing of my whole life i have written elsewhere its praise in full a barrel a small one to be sure but still a whole teakwood barrel full of long strings of glistening rock candy i had my fill of it at will though it was not kept as a sweetmeat but as a kitchen store having a special use in the manufacture of rich brandy sauces for plum puddings and of a kind of marchipan ornamentation for desserts all the spices used in the household were also ground at home in spice mortars and spice mills these were of various sizes including the pepper mills which were set on the table at meal times and the tiny ornamental graters which were carried in the pocket the entire food of a household was the possible production of a farm in a paper published in the american museum in seventeen eighty seven an old farmer says quote, at this time my farm gave me and my whole family a good living on the produce of it and left me one year with another one hundred and fifty silver dollars for i never spent more than ten dollars a year which was for salt nails and the like nothing to eat drink or wear was bought as my farm provided it all Unquote the farm food was not varied it is true as to-day for articles of luxury came by importation the products of tropical countries such as sugar molasses tea coffee spices 
found poor substitutes in home food products dried pumpkin was a poor sweetening instead of molasses maple sugar and honey were not esteemed as was sugar tea was ill replaced by raspberry leaves loosestrife hardhack goldenrod dittany blackberry leaves yeopon sage and a score of other herbs coffee was better than parched rye and chestnuts spices could not be compensated for or remotely imitated by any substitutes so though there was ample quantity of food the quality save in the town was not such as english housewives had been accustomed to there were many deprivations in their kitchens which tried them sorely the better cooks they were the more trying were the limitations every woman with a love for her fellow-woman must feel a thrill of keen sympathy for the good wife of newport new hampshire who had to make her thanksgiving mince pies with a filling of bear's meat and dried pumpkins sweetened with maple sugar and her crust of cornmeal her husband loyally recorded that they were the best mince pies he ever ate as years passed on and great wealth came to individuals the tables of the opulent especially in the middle colonies rivaled the luxury of english and french houses of wealth it is surprising to read in dr cutler's diary that when he dined with colonel dewar in new york in seventeen eighty seven there were fifteen kinds of wine served besides cider beer and porter john adams probably lived as well as any new englander of similar position and means a sunday dinner at his house was thus described by a visitor the first course was a pudding of indian meal molasses and butter then came a course of veal and bacon neck of mutton and vegetables when the new englander went to philadelphia his eyes opened wide at the luxury and extravagance of fare he has given in his diary some accounts of the lavishness of the philadelphia larder such entries as these are found Quote, of the home of Miers Fisher, a young Quaker lawyer, this plain friend with his plain but pretty wife with her these and thous had provided us a costly entertainment. Ducks, hams, chickens, beef, pig, tarts, creams, custard, jellies, fools, trifles, floating islands, beer porter punch wine and a long etc at the home of chief justice chu about four o'clock we were called to dinner turtle and every other thing flummery jellies sweetmeats of twenty sorts trifles whips syllabubs floating islands fools etc with a dessert of fruits raisins almonds pears peaches a most sinful feasting again everything which could delight the eye or allure the taste 
curd and creams jellies sweetmeats of various sorts twenty kinds of tarts fools trifles floating islands whipped syllabubs etc parmesan cheese punch wine porter beer Unquote. by which list may plainly be seen that our second president had somewhat of a sweet tooth the dutch were great beer drinkers and quickly established breweries at albany and new york but before the century had ended new englanders had abandoned the constant drinking of ale and beer for cider cider was very cheap but a few shillings a barrel it was supplied in large amounts to students at college and even very little children drank it president john adams was an early and earnest wisher for temperance reform but to the end of his life he drank a large tankard of hard cider every morning when he first got up it was free in every farmhouse to all travellers and tramps a cider mill was usually built on a hillside so the building could be one story high in front and two in the back thus carts could easily upload the apples on the upper level and could take away the barrels of cider on the lower standing below on the lower floor you could see two upright wooden cylinders set a little way apart with knobs or nuts as they were called on one cylinder which fitted loosely into holes on the other the cylinders worked in opposite directions and drew in and crushed the apples poured down between them the nuts and holes frequently clogged with the pomace then the mill was stopped and a boy scraped out with the stick or hook the crushed apples a horse walking in a small circle moved a lever which turned the motor wheel it was slow work it took three hours to grind a cartload of apples but the machinery was efficient and simple the pomace fell into a large shallow vat or tank and if it could lie in the vat overnight it was a benefit then the pomace was put in a press this was simple in construction at the bottom was a platform grooved in channels a sheaf of clean straw was spread on the platform and with wooden shovels the pomace was spread thick over it then a layer of straw was laid at right angles with the first and more pomace and so on till the form was about three feet high the tarboard was put on as a cover the screw turned and blocks pressed down usually with a long hand lever very slowly at first then harder until the mass was solid and every drop of juice had trickled into the channels of the platform and thence into the pan below within the last two or three years i have seen those cider mills at work in the country back of old plymouth and in narragansett sending afar their sourly fruity odours 
and though apple orchards are running out and few new trees are planted and the apple crop in those districts is growing smaller and smaller yet is the sweet cider of country cider mills as free and plentiful a gift to any passer-by as the water from the well or the air we breathe perry was made from pears as cider is from apples and peachy from peaches methaglin and mead drinks of the old druids in england were made from honey yeast and water and were popular everywhere in virginia whole plantations of the honey locust furnished locust beans for making methaglin from persimmons elderberries juniper berries pumpkins corn stalks hickory nuts sassafras bark birch bark and many other leaves roots and barks various light drinks were made an old song boasted oh we can make liquor to sweeten our lips of pumpkins of parsnips of walnut tree chips many other stronger and more intoxicating liquors were made in large quantities among them enormous amounts of rum which was called often kill devil the making of rum aided and almost supported the slave trade in this country the poor negroes were bought on the coast of africa by new england sea captains and merchants and paid for with barrels of new england rum these slaves were then carried on slave ships to the west indies and sold at a large profit to planters and slave dealers for a cargo of molasses this was brought to new england distilled into rum and sent off to africa thus the circle of molasses rum and slaves was completed many slaves were also landed in new england but there was no crop there that needed negroes to raise it so slavery never was as common in new england as in the south where the tropical tobacco and rice fields needed negro labor but new england's share in promoting negro slavery in america was just as great as was virginia's besides all the rum that was sent to africa much was drunk by americans at home at weddings funerals christenings at all public meetings and private feasts new england rum was ever present in nothing is more contrast shown between our present day and colonial times than in the habits of liquor drinking we cannot be grateful enough for the temperance reform which began at the early part of this century and was so sadly needed for many years the colonists had no tea chocolate or coffee to drink for those were not in use in england when america was settled in sixteen ninety two dealers were licensed to sell tea in public in boston green and bohea teas were sold at the boston apothecaries in seventeen twelve for many years tea was also sold like medicine in england at the apothecaries and not at the grocers many queer mistakes were made through ignorance of its proper use many colonists put the tea into water boiled it for a time threw the liquid away and ate the tea leaves in Salem, they did not find the leaves very attractive, so they put butter and salt on them. In 1670, a Boston woman was licensed to sell coffee and chocolate, and soon coffee houses were established there. 
some did not know how to cook coffee any more than tea but boiled the whole coffee bean in water ate them and drank the liquid and naturally this was not very good either to eat or drink at the time of the stamp act when patriotic americans threw the tea into boston harbor americans were just as great tea drinkers as the english now it is not so the english drink much more tea than we do and the habit of coffee drinking first acquired in the revolution has descended from generation to generation and we now drink more coffee than tea this is one of the differences in our daily life caused by the revolution many home-grown substitutes were used in revolutionary times for tea ribwort was a favorite one strawberry and currant leaves sage thoroughwort and liberty tea made from four-leaf loosestrife hyperion tea was raspberry leaves and was said by good patriots to be very delicate and most excellent End of chapter seven